Everything here at Keyboard Kimura is presented by OneBone, the first size-inclusive, big and tall brand. If you've been rocking with me for a while, you know I've been rocking with OneBone for a little bit now, and there are a bunch of reasons why. In addition to the fact that I straight up love their gear, from the different styles of pants and shorts, to the shirt varieties, hoodies, zips, the hot sauce, the whole collection, I'm in. But it's also because they understand that size doesn't matter, fit does. I'm a bigger guy and I carry it all in my belly, which meant for me, finding shirts that were long enough to not be revealing when I raised my arms or that kept me covered if I had to crouch down to pick something up was a challenge. But One Bone solved that. All the tops have added length to cover the gap between your shirt and your pants and everything is made from premium fabrics with tops ranging in size from medium to 8XL and bottoms going from a waist size of 30 to 65 inches. There is a sizing guide on the website that makes it easy to find the absolute right fit. And from flyweight to heavyweight and beyond, One Bone has got you covered. They offer free exchanges and returns to guarantee your perfect fit. And you can even buy now and pay later with four interest-free payments. On top of that, they're Canadian. And for me, that's important. As a One Bone ambassador, I've got you covered with a one-time promo code for 15% off your entire order. All you have to do is visit the link in the show notes, onebonebrand.com forward slash Spencer Kite, and enter the promo code Spencer Kite. That's my name, Spencer Kite, all caps, all one word, at checkout, and you get 15% off your entire order. It is, as I said, a one-time use code. But I'm confident that once you cop some One Bone gear and become part of the One Bone family yourself, you'll understand why my entire wardrobe consists of One Bone apparel. Go check out Drop 17, which hit the site a couple of days ago, featuring four new colors in the scoop and the V-neck t-shirts, plus the new Outwork pants in military green and black. I've got an order going in this week. You should too. One Bone, for big and all. What's up, everybody? ESK here on Wednesday, September 20th. Keyboard tomorrow presented by one, but one question for every fight for UFC Vegas 79, which takes place on Saturday at the UFC Apex, the start of a three-game homestand for the UFC in Las Vegas, headlined by a lightweight matchup between Rafael Fazeev and Matoish Gamrot. We'll just dive in. We'll just get started right out of the gates. So for this main event, my question is, who has the sharper defenses? I think it's a thing we don't talk about as much or in it in as much detail as maybe we should sometimes because as offensive skills continue to evolve, continue to develop and sharpen and, and broaden, I think defensive abilities and defensive tactics are going to become more important in determining outcomes of fight. So what I mean here by who has the sharper defenses, obviously, Rafael Fazeev is a striker. 
primarily wants to stand there and throw shots, wants to get into a fist fight with you. So does Matoish Gamrot have better striking defense, footwork, movement, get the hands up, move well, roll with stuff, better than Rafael Faziv has takedown defense and defensive wrestling abilities because Gamrot, even though he has good hands, even though he's knocked some people out, even though he can throw, is much better, is at his best when he is grappling. And so for me, a big part of this, we always talk about who's going to dictate the terms of engagement and who's going to be able to impose their will on things. Well, sometimes that comes down to the defensive elements of things. Are my defenses better than your offenses or good enough to thwart some of your offensive attacks, some of your offensive desires? And I think that's going to be a big part of this fight on Saturday. We get five rounds, potential 25 minutes. Gas tanks are always a question. Fazeev has a tendency to go hard and start to fade. And I know that he stopped Rafael Dos Anjos, Rafael Dos Anjos in the fifth round. But his tendency is to go hard. Gamrot has a ton of five-round experience from his days as a 2-8 champion in KSW. This is his second main event. He went the distance in his first last summer against Armin Saryukin. And I do think that those defensive questions are going to be a big part of this. How well can Fazeev keep himself upright, keep himself out of grappling situations where he doesn't have to expend a whole bunch of energy working to get back up, working to break free? Can he use footwork, movement, speed, front kicks up the middle, knees up the middle, threats of if you come in, if you change levels, you're going to catch something to give himself the opportunity to avoid those taxing grappling situations because we know, or we should know that Gamrot can wrestle the whole fight. If you want to go 25 minutes wrestling, he'll be fine. Conversely, does Gamrot have the defensive abilities to avoid those big shots, to avoid some of the varied striking that is 100% coming his way on Saturday? Fazeev does a great job of mixing up weapons, of mixing up targets, of working the body, of coming up high when you think he's going low and hitting you with all kinds of stuff. He's got finishing power, spinning attacks, everything. The whole gamut is here. So does Gamrot have the opportunity and the abilities to defend a bunch of that, to work out of the way, to use his wrestling effectively, offensively, to neutralize some of those tools? I think this is where the fight hinges. As much as both guys are going to get opportunities to get their offense off, I really want to see whose defensive skills are sharper, who's able to mute what the other guy wants to do better over the course of this fight, and how will that impact the outcome? I think this is a tremendous fight. I really look forward to this matchup. This is a fight that as soon as it was announced, I was like, yes, sign me up. I've already spoken to Fazeev. I speak to Gamrot in a couple hours here for a story that'll go up tomorrow on UFC.com. And I'm really keen on this fight. I think it's going to be a great fight and I can't wait to see it. Co-main event, Bryce Mitchell versus Dan Ige at Featherweight. My question is how does Mitchell bounce back after that loss to Ilya Tapuria? So officially, it's the second loss of his career because the loss to Brad Katona on the Ultimate Fighter counts. In the UFC itself, proper in the octagon, it's his first loss. Just to get that sorted. 
that loss was one of those losses that like, it may not, it may not just be one that you turn the page from. We saw coming out of that fight, Bryce Mitchell talk about potential retirement, talking about the juice not being worth the squeeze and some of the hardships he's faced in terms of health, in terms of finances, in terms of resources, things of that nature. And now he comes back for the first time since last December against the guy in Dan Ige that is locked in. I had the pleasure of spending some time with Dan out here in Vancouver for UFC 289 when he beat Nate Landwehr. I had the honor of talking to him about some pretty heady stuff in advance of this fight. Story is up now on UFC.com about his mindset, about getting back to this state of, or getting to a place where he's very locked in and feels in the best mental shape of his career. This isn't a guy that if you're Bryce Mitchell, you want to be taking lightly. That you could go in and be at 80% locked in, 80% ready to go. Dan Ige puts guys like that out. Dan Ige gets rid of guys like that. And so I want to see, and Bryce Mitchell has, from what I've seen, said a lot of the right stuff, seems to be in good spirits, seems to be happy to be competing. But it's different when you get in there. And he's a guy, to me, that on the way up, had some favorable matchups, did well, not taking anything away from him. But then he got in there with somebody that was better than him. And that guy beat the holy hell out of him. And right away, Bryce Mitchell went to, this may not be for me anymore. That's telling to me, or at least a red flag for me. And so I want to see on Saturday, when it starts going sideways, if it starts going sideways, or it's competitive and Dan Ige's in there, and he's hitting you with those lefts and he's hitting you with those rights and he's stuffing some takedowns and he's working back to his feet really quickly. What happens for Bryce Mitchell? Does he want to hang in there? What happens when he takes a big shot? Does he want to hang in there? Does he want to keep doing this? Or do those thoughts of this isn't for me anymore and this isn't worth it start creeping back in? Next fight on the main card is in the strawweight division. Marina Rodriguez versus Michelle Waterson Gomez. And my question is which one of these two still has something meaningful to offer? Now, I want to make sure that everybody's clear on this. I am not saying either of these women are done, full stop, need to no longer be in the UFC. That is not what I mean. But when I say meaningful to offer, I mean in the positions they currently occupy as ranked fighters in the strawweight division. Rodriguez is 36. She's lost two straight after being very much, in my opinion, in that championship mix. And truly, to my thought, meriting a championship opportunity a while back prior to the loss to Amanda Lemos and then a subsequent loss to Verna Jandiroba. Waterson Gomez is 37. She turns 38 in January. She has lost three straight and is one in five in her last six. The one win is a split decision win over Angela Hill. I think both can continue to compete. And we're going to find out on Saturday which one of them needs to adopt the Jim Miller mindset, the Jim Miller approach to things where they just can't compete against top 15 opponents anymore. I was really surprised that they rebooked this fight or booked this fight. Again, these two have competed before in a five round main event a couple of years ago, won by Marina Rodriguez during that four fight winning streak where I felt she did enough to get into that championship conversation. Rodriguez is part of this one in five run for Waterson Gomez. So it's interesting to me, it's odd to me that we're doing this again. But if it sets out which one of them holds a place in the top 10, holds a place in the top 15, 
and becomes the veteran stalwart in the division that is the test for the ascending fighters, as we saw Watterson Gomez do last time out against Luana Pinheiro in a losing effort, then that's fine. But this to me is one of those fights and one of those moments where we're at a crossroads here. We're at a point where this isn't going forward anymore. This is holding steady. And I don't say that disparagingly. It's just a matter of age, youth coming up behind them, talent coming up behind them. Like at some point, these things just change. They just shift. And we have to accept it. We have to talk about it. We have to acknowledge it. And so I want to see if one of or both of them can put forth the kind of performance on Saturday that makes me go, all right, the results haven't been there because they've each lost to quality competition. Let's be clear about that. It's not like they're getting beat by scrubs. It's not like they're getting beat by unranked opponents and just look terrible. They're getting beat by quality opponents. But I want to see if I, I come out of Saturday still believing that that's going to be the case. Or do I look at it and go, you know what? It just, it just isn't there anymore. It just isn't quite at that level that it has been for so many years for either of these women or one of these women, maybe neither of these women. We will find out on Saturday. Move to the welterweight division, Brian Battle versus AJ Fletcher. And my question here is, can we see some further development for Brian Battle? So Battle turns 29 tomorrow. Happy birthday. Nine and two overall, four and one in the UFC. Very good record. Very good results thus far. Last two wins are in 58 seconds combined. But the loss to Renat Fakradinov showed that there's some holes in the wrestling and, and the grappling game, right? Just got controlled for 15 minutes. The quick finishes are great, right? Not going to take anything away from a 14-second knockout win over Gabe Green at home in North Carolina. Great performance. Certainly take them. Everybody wants to get in there and handle business in 15 seconds or less. But I still want to see more growth because... The 15-second finishes don't give you the opportunity to work on those things that you need to be working on, that you need to be testing out, practicing live. I talk about it all the time. I talk about it with coaches all the time. There is a great difference between working on things, drilling things in the gym, going through things in sparring and training sessions and things of that nature and doing it live. That person in the cage is the only person that is coming after you with the same intent that you are going after them. Your training partners aren't or shouldn't be. They shouldn't be trying to knock you out or choke you unconscious or break your limb if we're talking about an arm bar or something like that. And so for me, I want to see, this is where I want to see some of that growth, some of that development. Can you show me that over these couple of years since The Ultimate Fighter, We've built up the skill set. We've improved the wrestling since the loss of Fakradinov. We've got a, we've got cardio. We've got the ability to go 15 minutes hard or 10 minutes hard. More than, like, again, as I said, we'll take 44 seconds against Takeshi Sato. We'll take 14 seconds against Gabe Green. And if it continues to happen and Brian Battle just happens to be this guy that doesn't fight more than 30 seconds, so be it. But as somebody that was high on him coming off of the Ultimate Fighter, coming out of Team Volk, I want to see that we're getting some development. I believe we are. My assumption is that we are. But I want to see it in application. 
Move to the featherweight division, Ricardo Hamosh versus Charles Jordan. My question is, will Tactical Jordan turn up again? So last time out against Crone Gracie, Jordan was pretty measured, pretty restricted for him, right? A guy that is usually pretty wild, pretty active, pretty all over the place, willing to throw all kinds of different stuff, isn't afraid to put himself in tricky spots. He was real measured, understandably, rightfully, against Crone Gracie, especially on the ground, won a very good decision, clear decision, excellent performance overall. Now he gets in there with a guy that's a bit of a loose cannon, that likes to throw spinning elbows, that likes to throw that weird kick behind his leg kick that doesn't do any damage. It just looks interesting. Like it to me is one of the most useless strikes that we see people use in MMA. It's just flash. It's just panache for no reason. And I want to see if Jordan, who I think is capable of being a top 15 fighter in this division, is able to keep things dialed in, is able to keep things tactical, is able to keep things from straying too far into the just pain outside the lines. Because he's talked about it, right? He and I talked about it on an episode of A Conversation With. He talked about it after that fight with Crone Gracie that in his youth, he made some mistakes. In his early days of his career, he made some mistakes and was just not tactical enough, not technical didn't look at game plans, didn't look to execute properly. I think if he executes properly, if he takes the weapons that he has and the skills that he possesses and puts them into a game plan that he executes, he could be a top 15 fighter. We saw that in some of the good performances that even didn't produce wins, right? Had good moments against Shane Burgos, had good moments against Nathaniel Wood. These are good opportunities. These are good fights against good, good competitors. If he can stay technical, I think he could be a top 15 guy. But we're going to see on Saturday because Hamos is going to invite him into a chaos fight. He's going to invite him into, let's just get wild and throw some stuff. Let's chase a fight of the night. If it happens organically, fine. If it just comes about that in staying technical, they create magic, great. But I want to see if Jordan can avoid getting dragged into something where he maybe shouldn't get dragged into. It's one question for every flight for UFC Vegas 79, presented by One Bone. We move to the prelims, the bantamweight division, Miles Johns versus Dan Argueta. And my question is, where are these two in the bantamweight division? So Miles Johns is 29 years old, 13 and two overall, four and two in the UFC. Argueta is 30, nine and one with one no contest for his career, one and one with a no contest in his last fight in the UFC. Bantamweight, to me, is the deepest, most talent-rich division from top to bottom in the UFC. And so when you have a couple of guys like this that have had some good moments, but some not great moments, and they're 29 and 30 respectively, which isn't old, but is at that point where if we're going, we got to start going. I really want to see what we get from these two. I have always been high on Miles Johns. I think thus far he has underperformed in the UFC. I want to see what a second full camp with the guys at Marathon MMA back home for him in Kansas is like. I want to see what Dan Argueta learns and builds upon from that no contest with Ronnie Lawrence where he started out 
really well, started out really strong. And I feel for him that that fight was halted prematurely, but he showed some good things in there. Had a good win against Nick Aguirre. It wasn't entertaining. It wasn't action-packed or anything like that. It was just a get-right, get-in-the-win column, get-moving-forward kind of performance. So I want to see this fight because I do think that there is room for each of them to grow and move forward in the division. But I also want to get a sense of, does that mean into the second 15? Is there lower third of the top 15 upside here for either of these guys? Are they just going to be mid-pack bantamweights that are in good competitive fights, but kind of have the results that they've had thus far? Winning two, losing one, going one, one, and one over three fights, like that sort of thing. And the only way we find this out is to see what happens on Saturday and get them in there together and just watch how it shakes out. Move back to the welterweight division. Team Tim Means, Team Means, Tim Means versus Andre Fialyu. And my question is, did we learn our lesson from Fialyu? So, comes in last year in January, short notice debuts against Michelle Pahea, has a good performance in a losing effort, right? This is as Pahea is on this solid run. He's dialed back the crazy. He's putting together some victories. And Fialyu beats him, wins the first round, not beats him, wins the first round, but then starts to fade a little bit because it's short notice and Pahea is a monster and things like that. But it's a good, it's a good effort. Puts him on the map, puts him on the radar. Everybody goes, okay, let's pay attention to this guy. He comes back in April and knocks out Miguel Baeza. Very good performance, stopping a promising young fighter, a guy that has shown some upside, had some success in the UFC already. Turns it around three, four weeks later and does the same thing to Cameron Van Camp. And at that point, people just started going crazy. Projecting him for top 15. They were doing that after the Pahea fight that this guy could be X, Y, and Z. And then he fights Jake Matthews and he fights for a third straight month. So he wins in April. He wins in May. He turns around, goes to Singapore to fight Jake Matthews at UFC 275 and gets walloped. Straight up walloped. Has no answers against Jake Matthews in a stand-up fight with Jake Matthews. Comes back after that one. Gets into a fist fight with Muslim Salikov and gets stopped. Comes back after that one and gets into a not as much of a, a brawl, not as much of a exchange with Joaquin Buckley, but still gets finished. And so after all of everything, he's two and four in the UFC. And he's on a three-fight losing streak where he's been finished in three straight fights. The lesson I mentioned in the, in the question of did we learn our lesson is that we can't rush to rate these folks and project them without really seeing them challenge, without really seeing them compete. It's one thing to say this was a strong performance against Pahea on short notice and be positive and, and take positives from the wins over Baeza and Van Camp. But we also have to look at who those individuals are and then look at the next fight and the one after that and give it time and give it opportunity so that we look at things like, did the Pahea result partially come from it being just a short notice fight and Pahea not having time to prep for him and him being a different type of fighter than he was expecting to compete. There's all of these different things that we have to factor in. And it feels like we are always in this rush to run out and put a ranking on somebody or put a ceiling on somebody or a projection on somebody in terms of how far they could go. And it's always 
the greatest extension possible. I know it's not fun or sexy to tune into me and I'm saying, I'm not sure I want to wait and see, but that's the thing we need to do because every time we project one of these people and they fall on their face, we look like idiots when the reality is this sport is hard. Winning consistently at this level is difficult and you can look very good at times and it all come crashing down as it has for Fialu. And so to me, it's just next time we get somebody that looks good out of the shoot, that has a couple of good performances against people to a certain level, let's just, let's just pump the brakes. Let's just go. We don't need to hit the NOS. Let's, let's just pump the brakes. Let's go a little slower with some of these folks. Give them time to grow and develop and let us really get some experience with them to gather data and figure this stuff out. Move to middleweight, Jacob Malkoon versus Cody Brundage. My question is, will Cody Brundage turn up this time? So listen, I think we need to do a better job of just speaking about things plainly when it comes to the sport. We want to be super nice, nice, and we want to take care of everybody's feelings and not be complete assholes about things. And I'm not advocating for being an asshole about things, but I think there is a way to speak truthfully about performances and results that can be critical without being overly harsh for the sake of being a dick. And so here's what I'll say. Cody Brundage turned up on short notice at the UFC on ABC event in Jacksonville, Florida against Cedricus Dumas. And he just wasn't there at all. Like every time they got back to the corner, Mark Montoya is diving into him saying, you got to wake up, man. Like, what are we doing? Do you even want to be out here? And he didn't look like he did at all. He was diving on guillotines, trying to find quick finishes against a guy that he should have been able, given what we saw in Dumas's previous fight against Josh Fremd, he should have been able, in theory, to out-wrestle him and grind out a decision. That's what I think a lot of people expected. Go out there and just wear on this dude who doesn't seem to have great takedown defense, just go out there and get him. And he didn't. He didn't wake up. He didn't have anything. He kept trying to dive on that guillotine, even when it wasn't there. And it results in a loss. And it was his third straight loss. He's now two and four in the UFC. And here he is on Saturday, again, jumping in on short notice to face Jacob Malkoon, who is limited, but has been overall successful in the UFC. Four and two, I believe. Losses to Phil Hawes and Brendan Allen. And the Brendan Allen loss is a unanimous decision, but it's a competitive fight. And Brendan Allen has looked really good over these last few fights. And so I want to see on Saturday, and I, we're going to know inside of two and a half, three minutes, if Cody Brundage is there. And if he's not, it just be like, I just, I don't understand it, quite frankly, quite honestly. I would expect, I would assume that he has dialed all the way in, that he has been in the gym, in a pseudo camp, doing the, I just stay ready because this is going to be the only way I get a chance again. And he turns up as good as he can be on Saturday. He almost needs to win or lose. He needs to look good and be as good as he has been thus far in the UFC. Because the last fight was really, really not good. And it was a bad look, right? 
you accepted the opportunity and then you turned up on Saturday morning and it wasn't good. Now, listen, if there are extenuating circumstances that I don't know about, if there was stuff going on in the life of Cody Brundage that I am unaware about, certainly that factors into things and I will give him grace and I will give him space on that. But from the evidence I have, from the performance I got to witness, it was not good. He did not look like he wanted to be in there. His coach didn't think he wanted to be in there and talk to him about stopping the fight. And should we just bounce? Like, what are we doing? And so you're back in that same position on Saturday and you need to remedy it. You need to rectify it. This needs to be a completely opposite performance of that last one. And I think we'll know inside of a couple of minutes whether that's going to be the case or not. Move to heavyweight. Muhammad Usman versus Jake Collier. My question here is are the UFCs trying to listen to our cries? Have the UFC been paying attention to what we've been saying? This fight is on the prelims. Waldo Cortez Acosta and Lucas Dreschke were on the prelims. Martin Budai and Josh Parisian, Mick Parkin and Jamal Pogues on the prelims. Alexander Romanov and Blagoy Ivanov opened up the July 1st show. We haven't had an inexplicable heavyweight main card fight since April when Marcos Rosario de Lima and Cortez Acosta were on the main card. There have been a couple, right? There have been a couple. Two fights between Justin Taffa and Austin Lane, one in Jacksonville, where Lane is from and was drafted into the NFL for the Jaguars. And then one again a couple of weeks ago in Sydney, Taffa being an Australian. And then the other was Junior Taffa against Parker Porter in Singapore. Junior Taffa, kickboxer, Oceanic region, Pacific Rim region, makes a little bit of sense. For the most part, though, over these last four or five months, we haven't been getting those heavyweight fights that we complained about and laughed about and joked about for months on end being stuck in the middle of the main card. It's just not happening. Last year, this fight would have been on the main card. And hell, Muhammad Usman won the Ultimate Fighter two seasons ago and is 2-0 in the UFC. So you could make an argument. You could find a way. The UFC could very easily say, hey, this is our Ultimate Fighter winner. He's 2-0 in the UFC. Why wouldn't we put him on the main card? But they didn't. And now, the argument is Jake Collier's on a three-fight slide, hasn't been good since he's come back and been a heavyweight. Muhammad Usman's last fight against Junior Taffa was ugly, and so we don't need this on the main card. And, and listen, quite happy that it's not. But on the whole, it feels like the UFC is paying attention here and has heard the criticisms and has heard the jokes and is trying to adjust. And for all the times that we rightfully, understandably give them shit about stuff, we got to give them props on this one. Good job changing this up. Good job keeping these fights from being just dead in the middle of a main card, cutting all the fun, all the, all the momentum out of these events. It's perfectly fine on the prelims. It'll come and go. And then we get a whole bunch of fights afterwards. This is where these fights belong. Thank you for listening to us, for hearing us. We appreciate it. Next up, we go back to strawweight. Mizuki returns against Hannah Goldie. And my question is, what is reasonable to expect of Mizuki? So this is her first fight since August, 2020. She had an ACL repair after that fight, a loss to Amanda Lemos. She is now 29. She's 14 and six overall, one and one in UFC competition. The last four losses are to 
Very good competition. Karolina Kovalkiewicz, flyweight champion Alexa Grasso, Verna Jandidova, and recent strawweight title challenger Amanda Lemos. She was a super highly regarded prospect when she was competing in jewels, when she was competing early days of Invicta FC, and all the way through into that fight against Jandidova before she got brought into the UFC. Highly regarded prospect, still only 29, but three years away is a long time. Now, it's only half of the amount of time Alex Reyes spent on the sideline. He was de dealing with a debilitating back injury. She has had to deal with a major knee surgery and recuperation and getting back to that. And so I just want to sit here on Saturday and get a look at this athlete that a lot of people, especially I think back to that fight against Grasso, right? Early days in Victor, that was one of those ones where it was like, these two are going to be the future. These are the young, early 20s, bunch of experience, bunch of promise that are going to be the future. Alexa Grasso has lived up to that, has reached that potential, took changing divisions, took some losses, but here she is. And still, not necessarily trying to project that Mizuki can get there as well because coming off a big injury like this and this much time away is certainly a big hurdle and a big barrier. But I want to see, can she come back and be a competitive, active, entertaining member of this weight class. Hannah Goldie is a perfect matchup here. This is a physical, solid grappler, little bit of strength, but not somebody that's just going to blow you out of the water. They haven't thrown her in too deep. This is a good matchup to get that measure, to get that litmus test of, of figuring out where Mizuki is at after all this time away. And I just want to see who she is now. I really liked her as a prospect prior to the layoff, prior to the injury. So let's see what we get on Saturday. Female athletes kick off the fight as well in the bantamweight division. Montserrat Rendon versus Tamaris Vidal. And my question is, where do these two fit at bantamweight? So the bantamweight division is, is just a mess. Let's be frank about this. It's a mess. Amanda, Amanda Nunes retired after successfully defending her title at UFC 289 here in Vancouver. We haven't had any announcements, declarations about what we're going to do going forward. Myra Bueno Silva tested positive after her win over Holly Holm. That certainly is a spanner in the works of all of that. And so we're sitting here going, what are we going to do? And even outside of those couple names that would be in the title conversation, and I know Jermaine Durand and me came out of nowhere off the top rope being like, yeah, I'm ready to, to face one of these girls and beat them and win a second belt. Don't think that's going to happen, but sure, at least it's a little bit of intrigue. We get these two. So Montserrat Rendon is 5-0 overall. This is her UFC debut. She is 34 years old. She's good size, good frame for the division. She's a strong, well-built woman, 5'8", 68-inch reach, but she's faced limited competition thus far. Tamaris Vidal, 7-1, won her UFC debut by first-round stoppage over Ramona Pasquale, is on a six-fight winning streak, is 25 years old, her only loss is back in March of 2019 to Carol Hosa, but she too has faced relatively limited competition. And so we get two athletes here in a super shallow division where a couple good performances have the ability to carry you not quite into the championship mix, but probably into the top 15, right? Chelsea Chandler, I believe, was holding on to a top 15 spot in this division, despite never actually fighting in this division. And so we've got to think about those things and we've got to look at those things 
as we have this fight on Saturday. I don't think that either of these women are championship contenders, are top end, get into the top five, get into the top 10. But the only way we're going to find out for sure is to sit down on Saturday and watch them open the show at the Apex. That is it for this program. I will be back tomorrow with 10 things. I will be back on Friday with the picks and plays. Thinking about pulling that show. Thinking about changing things up. Not just because the results haven't been there for me, but just trying to measure some things out and make sure that I am taking the right amount of time in my days, in my weeks, for myself, for life, for things that require my attention. As much as I love each and every one of you that tune into these programs and subscribe to the Keyboard Kimura Substack and follow me on Twitter and Instagram and all of that, I, I just have to always make these assessments of whether what I'm doing is, is the right use of my time. So I will let you know if things are changing, when things are changing. I appreciate you bearing with me. I appreciate you understanding in advance. I hope you have had a good week so far. I hope you have a good rest of the week. I love you. I appreciate you. I am thankful for you. You have value. You have meaning. Trans rights are human rights. Gonna end up. Thanks. Everybody. Talk to you.